Father, we would pray for your blessing on your word as it goes out, not only in this church, but also in all the churches that are meeting, all the churches that hold to your word, all the churches where they have individuals who are persevering during this time of trouble. And we understand it's just beginning, Lord. Uh, And we don't know what lies ahead, but we have you to trust in. And we'll trust in you for the guidance of your Holy Spirit to help us to bring to remembrance the things that we learn every Sunday and through Bible study and through sermons and, and studies that we go through on our own. So, Father, we ask for your blessing on our fellowship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is <clears throat> Sanctity of Life Sunday, January 17th. Uh, we do support the Pregnancy Care Center in El Cajon, and I don't know if you saw one of the postcards that came from there, uh, all the babies that they were able to save last year. Uh, it was a tremendous thing. My sister-in-law, she also assists at a pregnancy care center in North County, and Patty occasionally volunteers at the one in El Cajon. And, and we remember that this was established by Ronald Reagan to commemorate the anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision on Roe versus Wade. That's why we have the Sanctity of Life Sunday, to remember how precious life is. Now, abortion, I don't know if you know this, is the number one cause of death in the United States. Uh, nearly one million lives are taken each year. Uh, that is an old statistic. <clears throat> the current statistics are, at least in 2020, 42.6 million abortions were conducted worldwide. 42, almost 43 million people are not here anymore. And more than 1.1 million abortions have already taken place worldwide in the first 10 days of 2021. So a million people are not here, and we're past the first 10 days, so it's probably double that by now. And we're on track to meet the 42.6 million average in 2020. Now, since uh, Roe v. Wade has been installed... Uh, there have been over 60 million abortions in the United States alone. That's a lot of people who are not here. You know, Scripture says in Matthew chapter 24 that because of the increase in wickedness, the love of many will grow cold or the love of most will grow cold. And uh, having the pleasure of having a um, little grandson, a little over a year, it's wonderful to see him around. Of course, I'm I'm Papa. He knows my name. Uh, you know, he, I'll come into the house and I'll look at him. And Patty's saying, "There's a picture of me," and she goes, "That's Papa." And he goes, "Papa." You know, so he's saying Papa. It's just, it's great to see the interaction. And he has to warm up to me every time I see him because I usually have a sweatshirt on and a hat and sunglasses. And I walk in, and whenever I walk in, he takes off to either Grammy or his mom, and you know, and then he warms up to me, and everything's okay after that. And just experiencing. The little children like that. Uh, It's a wonderful thing uh, to have that. And, and of course, you you get to give the grandchildren back, you know, when they're uh, having issues. And that's wonderful. And it's a hard time of life for the parents to to go through that. But after reading the scripture, we have decided because of the wickedness in our land it's okay to take the life of a baby. Now, let me give you a parenthetical thought here. I know that there may be women in here and women who are listening online or who may hear the message that have gone through 
the act of having an abortion. And my heart goes out to them. Uh, but there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And I think most people who would either hear this or watch it later would understand that. And so there is forgiveness for all of our sins because I do consider it a sin, uh, the taking of human life. I'm never going to back away with that. But now, because of the increase in wickedness in 29 states in the United States, it is now legal uh, to practice infanticide. That's where if a baby is born or if a baby mostly is aborted and the heart is still beating, you let the baby die. You do not take care of the baby. And there have been stories in the past that I've read that just break my heart. Uh, And these little infants, I I don't know who cannot love a little baby when it comes out of the womb. It's kind of like a puppy. You know, when you see a puppy and how frail the puppy is or little kittens, you know, like that. When the kittens get older, maybe not so much. But when they're kittens... You know, you look at them or bunny rabbits, things like that. All those things that are new and, and being in the agricultural industry, uh, you see that in plants too. If you look at them and how uh, they have this infant stage and they're just trying to progress and mature, uh, you see all of that. <clears throat> and to wipe all of that away because you do not have love, that means wickedness, conversely, is increasing. So wickedness increases and the love of most grow cold. And especially for us, it's very difficult because now it's becoming accepted in society. And all the wickedness in society, you cannot turn on the television without seeing a non-nuclear family. You cannot watch television in, or in an Internet advertisement and not see a gay couple uh, that is there. Uh, you, you cannot see, uh, to combat the xenophobia which is out there, now um, the white race is put down and white privilege uh, is there. And we are all equal in the eyes of God, but there is a move towards wickedness to brainwash Everyone who is here, and you can see that with Twitter and Facebook, and I will probably give some more updates on that. My main point of this is I want to make sure that we hold human life dear than any chance we have to vote against abortion or to speak up against those who perform it. Uh, Not that we are beating them over the head, but we just call it wrong. We call this sin. We call this a travesty. We call this tragedy uh, in our society. And please do not be afraid to say so. If we do that, we will receive the praise from God. Maybe not men, but certainly Jesus will look on us with favor. Now with that, we are going to go into the scriptures here. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to finish up the book today. And so if you'd like to take out your digital copy of your Bible, or uh, if you have a written copy, that's okay too. You can pull that out, and I will be reading from the NIV uh, today. But after going through both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we've learned a lot about the first century church, which the Apostle Paul established under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Now, we've gone through both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians in just one run. We have seen the problems and successes of that church, and not much really has changed over the 2,000 plus years. We still have the same problems 
in churches. Not all the problems are in one church, but this particular church, it had a lot of problems. But yet they were loved by God and all of them would be raptured. We will all be changed, even though many of them were carnal uh, in the church. They had the issues that were there. Now, Paul's love and his encouragement for the church was evident. If the one thing is clear, that is clear. He loved the people in Corinth with a zealous love for, excuse me, for them, but he was also very protective. He did not want things to go wrong doctrinally or in church practice. All we have to do is recall the history of the church and, and simply reflect back on what was going on in 1 Corinthians to see what Paul was dealing with because at the end of the book here, he comes with a hammer and he believes some people in the church are a nail and he is going to use it, he is going to swing it. And he believed that the church was gifted, they were called to salvation, they would be uh, completely bringing that uh, salvation to fruition when Jesus would be revealed. So he, he considers them family. He considers them his children. But what were we looking at just by way of review in 1 Corinthians? Well, there were divisions. And divisions in chapter 1, he says this in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians. He says, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified? For you, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so they placed this emphasis on individuals. They weren't placing the emphasis on Christ, but on certain leaders. Who was a better leader? Who was stronger spiritually as a leader? Which leader was more worthy to baptize? Now, I don't know, hopefully all of you in here have been baptized, but I remember when I got baptized. You always wanted... The past, I wanted to get baptized by the pastor. My pastor at that time was Mike McIntosh. I wanted to get baptized by Mike McIntosh. Well, it, I didn't get baptized by Mike McIntosh. Oh, well, somebody else baptized me, and that was great. That was wonderful to have somebody else. And I got baptized in the River Jordan, and another pastor did that. I didn't need to get baptized the second time in the River Jordan. I just wanted to. Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan. I can be baptized in the River Jordan. I want to be just like Jesus. I want to do everything he did. It wasn't in the same place that he was baptized. That was more down by uh, Jericho, but I was more up by the Sea of Galilee up in that region. And so... It's wonderful to do all these things. And Paul said, it's great people get baptized, but to choose who should baptize you and who is more spiritual and who is more worthy. And you can't let anybody just baptize you. They have to be of certain standing. And that's what they were doing, going back and forth, kind of measuring up the leaders there. And of course, Paul was always talked down like he's no big deal. And then he accused them of being worldly and immature. So divisions, worldly and immature. What? What? could go wrong with that combination there he says brothers i could not address you as spiritual but as worldly mere infants in christ so they were given to quarreling they would argue back and forth what do you mean we don't have decaf we got to have decaf some people like leaded but i like decaf how come we don't have why donuts all the time why don't we have some crispy vegetables out there to eat after all it's the healthy alternative that's the temple of the holy spirit we need to put good things on the inside i think sugar is good i like sugar sugar is one of the four food groups for me and and, and it's just wonderful but see we argue about such ridiculous things 
And, and whether it's the lighting, well, they're fluorescent lights. We're trying to save energy, and we're told that by SDG&E, that's what we need to do. But then we took out the dimmers, and why would we take out the dimmers? The dimmers are good. And we can argue about so much inside the church, and that's what they were doing. They were quarreling. And then they were using worldly wisdom, elevating men who were leaders, rather than considering them as servants inside the church those who have more responsibility are considered to be more of a servant. And you don't take them and put them on a pedestal. You treat them as a servant of Christ. That's how you're supposed to do it and have respect for them in that way, but not elevate them in any way. And some of these leaders had become arrogant and puffed up. Of course, we had some information about that going through the first and second book of Corinthians. Then they were sexually immoral and it was being practiced inside the church. Incest was taking place. A man was having a relationship with his father's wife. And it was being celebrated. How are you guys doing? Come on in. Say, oh, it's great to see you. It's wonderful you can worship with us this Sunday. What if we did that to every couple that was living together? We sat them down. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. Yeah, you're professing Christians. Oh, it's great. It's wonderful to have you in the body of Christ. No. First Corinthians chapter 6, as we'll uh, <clears throat> go through briefly, it says, don't do that. You're deceived if you think everything is okay. Now, I'll actually read it to you now. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say that's what some of you were, but you've moved on from that. So people that practice those types of lifestyles, swindler, homosexual, sexual immoral, any of that, and they think it's okay, God will forgive them, he gives them the freedom to do that. He goes, no, you're deceived. You're not even saved. And so that was a caution, a warning that he delivered to them. But there were people in the church saying, no, it's completely okay to act like that. Now, it's a little bit different than Galatians chapter 6 where somebody is caught in a sin. They know it's wrong and they need to get out and they're just struggling to do that. And those who are spiritual are supposed to restore them. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the individual who says this is okay and everybody can practice it. It's kind of like the individual who would go into Congress that's a Methodist minister and say amen and a woman. You know, that, that goes against Scripture. That's not what amen even means. And, and it's uh, to use uh, the religious background as a means to promote uh, a woke environment. I don't know if you know what woke means, but we need to wake up to the wokeness which is out there and, and just try to accept everybody for who they are and what they want to do. And whatever they want to do is just fine as long as it doesn't affect anybody else. And God says, no. That is not the case, and we need to be aware of that. Now, they were also taking each other to court. In First Corinthians chapter 6, they were suing each other. And, you know, when Paul was talking to them about that, he basically uh, ridiculed them, brought them to shame. He goes, is there not somebody in the church that is, get the lowliest person inside the church to adjudicate these matters. I say this to your shame, is what he was telling them. If we have the word of God, we're able to judge such matters. Now, put this in our day and age. What Paul is saying is that instead of going to court with another believer, let the church decide. Let me say that in another way. Let the church decide legal matters. Now, you put it that way and you go, wait a second. 
legal matters, there's certain ways you have to do things, which is true. It is. But most legal matters that make it to the courts, I would say they're almost all of them, deal with either ethics or morality, where somebody breaks a contract and then they want to get out of it, or somebody was harmed in some way. All of these things are covered in Scripture. If you removed all the lawsuits that deal with ethics and morality, how many do you have? Love of money is the root of all evil. Can you judge if there is a love of money that has caused evil? I think we all can. And this idea of taking someone else to court, can we not adjudicate these things? For instance, I'm going to give you a a case where the church could easily judge. There are many cases where criminals, in the act of performing a criminal act, get harmed because the victim uses force against them, shoots them, hits them with a baseball bat, beats them up, something like that. The criminal gets incarcerated. Then the criminal comes back and sues the victim because of pain and suffering. Now I ask you, can you judge that? Can you say, is this right or is this wrong? It shouldn't even make it inside the doors of a courtroom. This man, this woman who is carrying out this criminal act should not be compensated in any way. Matter of fact, scripture says that criminal has to pay back the owner if there was any damage whatsoever. And there are cases, there was one in Florida recently that I just heard about last week where they tried to get it where the criminals do not have to pay back those victims are their victims. Of course, they lost, which was good, and they wanted to change the law in the whole state of Florida. And, but we can judge these things. And inside the church there at Corinth, they were taking each other to the court over ethical and moral issues. Now, when it comes to crossing the T's and dotting the I's, or crossing the I's and dotting the T's, a layperson would say, we have no idea what's required in that. Like if you have to have a, a will, uh, you want to make sure the will is correct. You need an attorney for that. You have to file it you know, with the court eventually. And, and all those things, I get that. But when it comes to most lawsuits, it's either ethical or moral. Then they had a misunderstanding of marriage what marriage was all about. Because somebody would get saved inside the church, a woman would get saved, and her husband would not be saved, and the woman saved would. But he's an unbeliever, and I should not be joined together with an unbeliever. We know that it says that in Second Corinthians, that you are not to be unequally yoked. And so therefore, they should divorce the unbeliever and marry somebody who's a believer. And Paul's going, no, don't do that. Remain in the situation to which you were called. When you were called, if you were married to an unbeliever, stay with the unbeliever. The believing spouse sanctifies the unbeliever and the children. It's okay. Remain as you are. Because they were getting divorced. They were separating, saying, you're not spiritual, and you're worshiping the goddess Diana, and I can't do that. And there are all kinds of problems with that. So Paul had to shape them up and, and get them on track as far as weddings and marriages were concerned. And then there would be somebody who was betrothed, and should they marry, should they not marry, should they wait for the Lord to come back? And Paul's saying, it's better to remain single, just as I am, but if you're burning with passion, get married, for heaven's sake. Make sure that you follow through with your commitment and you're not sinning if you get married because some, apparently some people were saying if you get married you're sinning because you're not waiting for the Lord and Paul I could see Paul why he was bald you know just 
pulling out his hair the whole time. And then this issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. Maybe you remember I've told the story about Chuck Smith, how they went to uh, get some ice cream, and I think he got either a nice big sundae or a banana split, and it just had the fudge all over it and the whipped cream and the nuts and the cherry and and it just was wonderful and somebody came up to him and said uh, pastor chuck shouldn't we bless this food and he goes how are you going to bless this you know this is this is just sinful right here the indulgence of that thing but but this idea and some people would say what are you doing you're eating that stuff don't again don't you know that your body is the temple of the holy spirit and, of course, they go down and they have two double-doubles at uh, In-N-Out Burger, but they don't see anything wrong with that whatsoever. When uh, I was going to a junior college, I was taking some classes, and I, I got a cup of coffee. I liked coffee. I still like coffee. And I was standing in line, and another student, fellow student behind me, says it to where the whole cafeteria could hear it. What are you drinking that for? That stuff is poison. And I just, dude, you know, I said, I set it down and I went off and I drank my coffee just the way it was. I, I, I liked it. It's okay. But there are some people that say you have to eat like Daniel. You have to be a vegetarian or you could, if you go on a strict meat diet, you know, that can be helpful as well. I really don't care what you eat. If it's grasshoppers or, Whatever the case might be, bugs. If you like bugs, you know, in foreign countries, they eat bugs. I think I showed you the picture of Cambodia where there was tarantulas, there were cockroaches, there were all kinds of uh, six- and eight-legged creatures that you could have crispy deep-fried and is seasoned, and you could just bite right into them. It's just wonderful. If you want to do that, you go right ahead. And whatever you do with your right hand, do with all your might. So don't just put one in there, put several in there. You can have that. It's okay. But there were some foods back then that were being sacrificed to idols. They'd be in, in the temple and they'd sacrifice a bull and it was given to this foreign god. And then it would go to the local butcher shop, which was at the temple as well. And it would be the best meat there. And so you'd get your filet mignon or your tri-tip or your prime rib and you'd take it home. Then you would be a believer in the home and you'd cook it all up and it smelled good with all the garlic and turning on the spit and oh you could just eat the crust on the outside because it was so tasty on the outside and then another christian you'd invite to come eat with you and they would inquire where'd you get the meat oh over at the temple butcher shop and then they'd be offended and how can you do something like that and the person would say oh just be quiet and eat it it's fine and idle is nothing and then they'd be stumbled and so there'd be an argument which would arise because of that and paul says look if somebody stumbled don't eat it don't participate in having that meat how many problems do they have so far they have all kinds of problems in this church. And you go, well, what were they doing right? Well, they, had, uh, they needed some correction on the area of pastoral compensation. Now, Paul did not choose to take, to receive anything from the church. He just chose not to do it. He didn't want to be accused of uh, wrongdoing in any way, and he wanted to spare them that. And so he chose not to do that. But there were some who were saying that, well, Paul isn't even a real pastor. He's not even a real apostle. He doesn't receive income from the church here. What's going on? So he had to correct them on that as well. And he even makes the case for pastoral income. He says in 1 Corinthians 9-7, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grape? Who tends the flock and does not drink of the milk? Or 
do not muzzle the ox that treads the corn. And, and so he makes the case for that, but he didn't take advantage of that. And then the believers were warned against idolatry. Apparently, there were people that would go to church, they would fellowship, then they'd go to the local temple that would worship a foreign god, and maybe they'd visit with Cousin Harry over at another temple, and they'd just make the rounds. They'd do this eclectic mix of temple worship and church worship. And Paul is saying, don't do that. What fellowship do you have? You know, these idols, they're not controlled by demons, but it's a demon activity that is around these idols. And they would participate in just going from place to place. There's some people that do that with churches. I like an eclectic mix of a church. You know, sometimes I go to the Catholic church that I was raised in, and then I go to the Methodist, and Calvary Chapel's great, and other non-denominational churches. I just like to go to all of them at one time. That person will never grow. That person will never turn into a, a solid oak tree. They will be something like a, a, I don't know if you know what a coral tree is, but coral tree grows big. It has real thick uh, trunks on it, but as soon as the wind comes, those big thick trunks just break and half the tree can crash down. It's not solid like an oak. And that's what happens to the individuals. They become watered down. Oh, I like this little bit of truth here and that little bit of truth here. And by the way, all the world has truth. All the truth that is in the world is God's truth, but not all truth is in the Bible. For instance, the truth of gravity. Is there a dissertation in the Bible about gravity? No, there's not. But it's God's truth. All the laws in the universe that govern the universe, all of that is God's truth. But the Bible is not meant to be a scientific document. It's meant to communicate a message for us, a message specifically of salvation and the glory of God. That's what it does. And so there may be truth in these other areas. All truth is God's truth, but not all truth is in the Bible. But what we need for living, it's sufficient. It's what we can acquire. And if we hear other truth, wonderful. Make it your own, but don't participate in worshiping at other temples with other idols. Then... They were mixed up on the proper roles of men and women inside the church. Basically, it was women don't act like men. Men don't act like women. Women don't put yourself in the place of leadership that men are supposed to occupy. And men don't take the place of leadership of women in the home and amongst women that they are supposed to occupy. We are different. And there is this move to blind or obscure uh, the differences in the sexes. This has been going on. I can remember preaching one of the first sermons over at El Capitan High School, and I was talking about unisex clothing and how there is this move to bring everybody together, make everybody wear the same thing, kind of like in a communist country. Everybody wears the same thing. We're all equal. There's no differences between us. And God would not have that. I can promise you God wants the distinction of nations and peoples. He likes the different colors that we all are. Red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. You guys remember that song? He loves that. It's wonderful. It's great. And we should celebrate that, not to the exclusion of one or the discrimination of one, but all are great in the eyes of God. So when it comes to the sexes, we're not to mix those up either. And this is where we can get into the gender issue. You know, if you were born a male, act like a male, even though it goes against the flesh. It's like a person dealing with the sin maybe of alcoholism. Do they crave the alcohol? 
Yes, they want the alcohol. I, I just live for alcohol. I want to experience the feeling that I get when I drink the alcohol. They want to do that. But God says, I, don't. If you're a drunkard, you're in danger. I was going to say something else, but I'll save that for another time. So it's this idea that you don't want to mix up men and women and their gender. We, we don't want to say men are women and women are men and both are equal. They're not equal, and God never intended them to be equal. But they are equal as far as their standing in Christ. They are co-heirs with Christ. Women are not less than men. Men are not greater than women, and vice versa. We are all equal, and so he had to set that in proper motion. By the way, there is a women's lib movement going on. That's an old phrase. Lib- women's liberation movement, which was there. <clears throat> and the from the book of Genesis, it tells us that the women uh, will have the desire to rule over men. But it says the men will rule over the women. And that's all part of the curse. And so we have to fight that. The men will want to be domineering over the women and force them to do whatever their will is. And the women want to control the men. And they will either nag them or treat them terribly in order to get the men to do what they want. Uh, you've ever heard the phrase, uh, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world? You know, if the women have a desire to control and they can wield that control and make a man's life miserable. I was just reading about uh, uh, Tamar and how Tamar was abused by her brother. Uh, she was the sister of Absalom and he ended up raping Tamar and once he raped Tamar, he hated Tamar just wanted nothing to do with her whatsoever and it was just harsh and kicked her out and shut the door. Get this woman away from me here. And that's the tendency of men. If they give into their base instincts, that's how they will control. And God would not have that as well. And so these roles were being mixed up inside the church at Corinth. Now, they were also messing up with the Lord's uh, Supper. And back then they would have these agape feasts. They'd bring in the food. I, I think you remember me talking about that. And those who had a lot of food, they would eat a feast. And somebody would bring Coke and Doritos. And that's all they'd have. And they'd be hungry all the time. And God said, you're doing more harm than good. God said that through Paul. You're doing more harm than good. Eat at home and come in and participate in the Lord's Supper, the, the bread and the wine. Uh, when you come together and don't humiliate those who come into the church that have nothing. They also were in need of instruction concerning spiritual gifts because they were blowing it all over the place, especially with tongues and prophecy, just wildly speaking in tongues, the whole church at one time. And Paul said, if people come in and see what you're doing here, they're going to think you're all mad. Just knock it off. Two are at the most can speak and there must be an interpreter every time and those who pray in a tongue you must pray that you interpret what you uh, have just prayed and so it's very clear what he says there and prophets were standing out uh, three or four at a time they would stand up and they'd start prophesying it was just mayhem and he goes look one at a time our god is a god of order then there was not a proper understanding of what biblical love was and so paul in first corinthians chapter 13 had to spell out love is patient Love is kind. Love does not keep track of wrongs committed against it. Were they doing that? They were quarreling. 
Yes, they were doing that. And Paul says, we're not even to the end of the book of 1 Corinthians yet. Look at all the problems they had. And also, some were confused about the rapture and the resurrection. Some were saying the resurrection had already taken place or it isn't going to take place at all. And because the Sadducees had influence over some of these individuals, and the Sadducees, they were Sadducees because there was no resurrection in their view. But the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. And so they were arguing back and forth because some of these guys were Judaizers, which came from the lineage of the Pharisees, and some came from the lineage of the Sadducees. And they would argue about these things. And Paul says, enough, stop it. We will not all uh, sleep, but we will be changed. He goes on to say, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. And so that's the rapture of the church, and he spelled all that out, and there is a resurrection. And he even went on to use secular philosophy when it comes to the resurrection. He goes, what are the people going to do that are baptized for the dead? They believe in the resurrection too. The pagans believe in the resurrection. And you're teaching there is no resurrection? So he corrected all of that. And Paul reminded the believers to give up their wealth in the last chapter and to help those who are in need, especially those in the church in Jerusalem. So how many problems did they have? There was more than one per chapter that Paul was dealing with going through all the chapters in First Corinthians. So in hindsight, the church in Corinth, there was a lot of confusion, a lot of bad practice, a lot of bad doctrine. And the confusion with this had to be corrected. It had to be set straight. And this is how the false teachers were able to worm their way into the church and corrupt it. And the corruption is what Paul was fighting vigorously against. And we constantly have to do that. We have to fight against bad doctrine which is out there, and bad practice. A bad belief system as well. I've heard people say, oh, I believe God is going to save everyone. Scripture does not teach that. Matthew chapter 25, 46, and Daniel 12, 2. Eternal punishment and eternal contempt await those who reject Christ. And so we have, and I have to keep this in mind, we all do. They didn't have the Bible. They couldn't say, let's turn to the book of Galatians. They didn't have that. They had the Old Testament, and they had people coming in that were apostles and prophets. Quote, apostles. Paul was the apostle to the church of Corinth. But they had these prophets there as well. And the prophets would tell them the will of God. So they had to trust these people. And I could see where they'd say, well, they're a prophet. We need to listen to what they say. They were self-proclaimed prophets. Now, in the Old Testament, if you're a prophet and you prophesied wrong, you were to be stoned. You're to be killed, but not so in the New Testament. It just points out to us that if somebody is wrong and they claim to be a prophet, we don't have to listen to them. They're probably leading people in error. And so they, they didn't have the Bible like we do. They couldn't quote the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and you get the picture. They didn't have any of that. They just had the Old Testament and the prophets and the apostle Paul. And remember, Paul was making the case to forsake the false teaching and the false teachers that had recommendations or letters from important people or persons in Jerusalem. And these false teachers were proud, boastful, and they sowed division inside the church. They were the source of it. And Paul wants them to make judgments concerning these false teachers and their doctrines. And those judgments needed to be made by at least two or three people in the church. And when he talks about this, he's referring back to Deuteronomy I think uh, 
forget which chapter it is. I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 19, where it says one person is not enough to make a decision. So what's going on here is Paul is bringing all of this to a culmination. He's telling the church from chapter 10 through the end of the book in 2 Corinthians that he's coming, like I said, with a hammer and there are some nails in the church. And he's going to whack them on the head if they don't correct it themselves. So he's calling upon them to make judgments. And he says, don't make it alone. Make sure you have two or three people with you. And that's where we're going to pick it up in First or Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. He says, this will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you. The second time, I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare who sinned earlier or any of the others, those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Now, this word spare is a term that is used on the battlefield, that you spare somebody's life. It's a very strong word that he's using. And he says, I will not spare them as if in a battle. When I, it, those who sinned earlier or the others, and he's talking about here the legalists, those Judaizers who were there, the ones who were causing all the division. Verse 3 says, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. And so he will institute this discipline. Now, there are times where we come in and we comfort the afflicted. There are people with broken hearts damaged souls and we have to come in and bring comfort to them because they are distraught on the inside Uh, we can bring physical spiritual help to them pray for them provide words of encouragement and solace all of those things we can do and as we should whenever we see uh, some type of tragedy take place but then there are also times where we afflict the comfortable where those people who think everything is going just fine, but we come in and say, no, things are not just fine, and we need to correct what has gone awry. Paul used words like this with Timothy. In Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, he says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. That means, for instance, if for some reason I can't make it, I wake up, I'm just deathly ill. And I call somebody up and I go, Pat, Vince, Rudy, you're up. I know you only have 20 minutes, but you're up. You'll do great. In season, out of season, you are ready to give a message. I can remember uh, Mickey Stonier, who is Mike McIntosh's uh, assistant pastor, when I was going through seminary, <clears throat> he would say, uh, that well, Mike he actually started Horizon in uh, Rancho Santa Fe, and then Bob Botsford took it over. But he would drive up to Rancho Santa Fe and then come all the way back to Horizon. And they would have a first service, and a guest speaker came in the first service, and and then Mike would show up coming back from Horizon in Rancho Santa Fe, and he would give the message. Well, they had closed out the service. They're on the last song. They're getting ready to go into the next service. And Mickey Stonia goes, 
Okay, Mike is not here. Let's see. I need to have a message ready to go. He hadn't prepared one. He, okay, what's my text going to be? And he started thinking through it. He had less than five minutes. And so he's getting ready to stand up and go up. And then Mike comes in right in the corner, right, right through the doors at the last minute. And he's able to preach. And so we need to be prepared in season and out of season. And that's what he was telling uh, Timothy when Paul wrote this. And he also says, Correct, rebuke, and encourage. Now, if somebody has improper doctrine, you sit them down. Let me show you a more excellent way. Let me show you what the scripture has to say about this. I think maybe you're veering off the course a little bit. And then rebuke. What do you think you are doing? You are causing problems here, and you need to cease and desist. I am telling you, you are wrong. And that's the rebuke. That's the harshest way to do it, and then encourage. Let me help you. Come alongside here. I want to show you something. This is how we should be doing it. You know, and you do so in a loving manner. You're not tearing the person down. And so Paul told Timothy to do this. Now, he was young. He was a young guy, probably in his 20s. And he's pastoring this church in Ephesus. And all these people are coming in. And, well, what am I supposed to do? I don't know how to do this. He goes, take heart, young men, young laddie. You want to make sure that you're going to do just fine. The Spirit of the Lord is with you, and you're going to be able to fulfill your commitment to Christ. Don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit will guide you. That's basically what he was telling him. And he says, do all this with great patience and careful instruction. And so he is supposed to be prepared. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. So see, it's it's not an easy job, but Paul was telling Timothy, you can do this. Just keep a level head because there's going to be people who are going to be like savage wolves. We know this from the book of Acts that will come in and just ransack the church at that time. And even today, we have to be careful of savage wolves who would do this. Now, back again in verse 13, he says, This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I do have the reference here to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. He says, one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three, and I will install my own word, reliable witnesses. Because people can get together and they can collude and they can decide what they're going to say. Happens all the time. And we want to make sure that somebody is a trustworthy witness. We want to be considered trustworthy witnesses. Now, this is not the only time where this is listed in Scripture. I know it's in the book of Numbers and it's elsewhere throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus even used this in Matthew chapter 18 when it comes to uh, going to your brother and reconciling with them if they have sinned against you. You're supposed to go alone first wait on the two or three witnesses, and you don't tell them anything either. Scripture is sufficient. If you go to somebody and you try to work it out with a problem that is going on and they reject you, then that's when you go and you talk to somebody about it. God can give us plenty of wisdom to approach somebody, but it's very hard to do that. If somebody has sinned against you, to go... And it's basically a confrontation. It doesn't have to be a harsh confrontation but you're simply telling them that they have 
made an error, not only an error, but a sin against you, and you're supposed to talk to them. We should never go to another individual and tell them all of the problems and say, what do you think I should do about that? No, you go to them first and you work it out. After that, if you're unsuccessful, then you seek counsel after that. But God used this two or three witnesses. That's why you bring people in from the church, leaders inside the church who understand what Scripture says, and they're able to adjudicate what's going on. They're able to discern the ethics and morality of the sin that has taken place, if in fact it is even a sin. He goes on here, uh, he referring to Christ, is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we live with him to serve you. Now remember, Paul was accused of being weak. And Jesus, he came in weakness. But he's warning them, if I show up, I'm going to go in the strength and power of God, not my own weakness, and I will install the church discipline here. And it was difficult, like I said before, previously, to be a disciple of Jesus in Corinth. After all, there were temple prostitutes. Uh, The goddess Diana was there, and the temple prostitutes would go into the streets at night, and they would sell themselves, and they would take the money back to the temple. And that was a regular habit. There could be hundreds of them going through the streets. And so there was a lot of temptation in that city, It'd be the same type of temptation as in Las Vegas or Hollywood or uh, maybe even New York City. Lots of temptations uh, in those cities. And so it was difficult for them. But God wanted to make sure that his church remained pure. And he encouraged the people through Paul to examine their own lives. And he goes on to say this in verse 5, but this is probably predicated on the fact that Paul is accused of being a false apostle, not being in Christ, not passing the test. So Paul turns it back around on them, the ones who are the agitators. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not that you will not do anything wrong, not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. Now, this idea of the test. Have you guys tested yourselves to see if you're in the faith? I mean, what constitutes a failed test? What constitutes a winning test where, yeah, I'm a believer, Do you have that confidence that you are? Well, I will tell you, for me, I think Scripture points to one aspect that you can test yourself to see if you're saved, and that is love. This is in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And some people interpret that to say, well, love is the fruit of the Spirit, and then there's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. But also in 1 John 4, 8, it says, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, that is a somewhat nebulous statement. It's not clear. You don't have bullet points after that. But the rest of Scripture is the bullet points. So if, if you hear somebody who is a Christian saying, I hate that person. Well, 
You cannot hate somebody and be in Christ because you're looking at them as being created in the image of Christ. And they are a sinner just like we are a sinner if we do some reflection on that. So how is love expressed? If somebody comes up to you and says, I love you. If it's a husband and wife, that's a good thing. Practice that. Tell your spouse you love them. But if that's all you ever do, you say you love me, but where's the evidence of it? You don't plan anything. You don't do anything. You don't give me money. You don't give me time. All of those things, do you really love them if it's not expressed some way? So the expression comes out in works. Not that the works save us, but it is a way to test if you're in the faith. Now, some people do all the works and have no love. You have to have the love which motivates the works. If you have the works and you have no love, that person is not saved. There are plenty of people like that in the world that do works to help each other or to help their fellow human beings, but they do not have the love of God with them. Now, some of the things that you can point to. Well, what are these works? One is fellowship with God and with each other. Hebrews 10.25 deals with each other. If somebody is not going to church as a believer, the first question I would ask is, why? Why aren't you going to church as a believer? This is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not like the ten suggestions in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Honor God. Do not take God's name in vain. Those are not suggestions. It's a command. Well, I don't like. Oh, really? You don't like? What perfect church have you found? You must be a perfect person to go to a perfect church. And if you ever are finding a perfect church, don't go to it because you're not perfect and you're going to ruin it if you go to a church like that. And so fellowship with each other is a command. Also fellowship with God. If we love God, we fellowship with him. You know, I was, there are times, I was listening yesterday to scripture. I was going through the book of Judges, an audio, and I got to the book of Ruth. And I started getting all choked up on the inside, uh, listening about the kinsman redeemer and ruth and naomi and i'm i'm out there physically laboring i'm putting in steps and i'm i had to stop for a minute and work on the steps this is nuts and you know no but this is good you know listening to the scripture it's like wow it just sometimes it can just move you on the inside and that's fellowship with god and god wants us to see his unending eternal love and I was listening to that, and I was just going, wow, that is so incredible. And so fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. Also, giving of self and wealth, both, where you, provide your, you put yourself out there. And you hardly say no to any request that's given to you. And also your wealth you give to those who are in need. And this is where you consider others better than yourself. And... Also, the individual who focuses on self, they always return to Christ and they go, God, forgive me. And that's First John 1, 9. He forgives us every time we ask. Helping the less fortunate, the widows, the orphans, winning others to Christ or discipling others. We all are supposed to be doing that. We all are supposed to be sharing our faith. It's not just for pastors and elders and deacons. And also Micah 6, eight, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. 
That's what he requires with us. Do you ever extend mercy to somebody? You know, some of the pardons that have been passed down lately uh, from the president, there have been some objections to those. Every one of them, most of them, are true lawbreakers. And yet mercy is being extended to them. There was mercy extended to a woman named Susan. I forget her last name. She placed a bomb in the capital, the United States. She was sentenced to many years in prison. President Clinton uh, pardoned her, and now she founded BLM. And and you think to yourself, wow, they still didn't get it right, even though they were forgiven, and it was an act of mercy to do that, to extend that. And I still rejoice over mercy being extended. Remember, that's getting something you don't deserve. And when we look at our enemies and we extend to them mercy, we are living like God would have us live. And that I'm telling you from personal experience, that is a hard thing to do, but God still commands that. Also, keeping God's commands. Are you keeping God's commands? First John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. If we keep what his word says, now you have to know his word, but if you keep what his word says, well, you're a believer. And I think that there's one thing that constitutes an unbeliever. Refusal. When God says something in his word and we go, nope, not doing it. I'm not going to follow through with any of the things I just listed. I'm not going to fellowship. I can be a Christian. I don't have to go to church. Really? You're going to violate the command? You're not keeping his command? And so if you want to examine yourself, are you in the faith? Just say, am I doing all those things that were just listed? Or am I refusing? And it can be by a silent obstinance. No. Mm. I don't mm just shrugging the shoulders, or it can be like, no, and don't ask me again. I had somebody say that once when they were being invited to home fellowship. No, and don't ask me again. <laughs> okay, won't ask you again. No, it's up to you, man. You just follow through what you think you need to, but we're supposed to examine ourselves. Now, closing it out here, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is for your perfection. This is why I write these things And when I am absent. And when I come, I may not have to be as harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. He doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. What he means is aim for being complete or mature. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. What a great ending. You know, he's in these last few chapters, very harsh, putting down the hammer, and then he says, hey, but may God's love and peace be with you. And Paul is making the greatest of efforts to correct what is wrong in the church, and he is doing so are not doing so in a ruthless manner, but strongly encouraging the leaders to handle these issues with two or three witnesses at least on each one. And Paul desires that they make these changes in a proper manner. And he 
closes it out here in the last three verses. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This is what I was talking about earlier. If you go to the Middle East, if you're Italian, you know, Italy, they grab you and mm, mm, both cheeks. That's how they do it. And they give another hug on the inside. I, it, it's a genuine embrace is what it is. And that's what he's talking about. Now, we are not in the Middle East. We're not in Italy. We don't normally do that. If you did that to a stranger coming up to the church, they'd probably never come back. But it can be a real heartfelt handshake or a nice hug, two, three pats on the back, maybe four or five and a squeeze. You know, and That's what God is asking us to do. All the saints send their greetings and may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. See, he ends it with a benediction, a blessing at the end. Even though he's speaking harshly, he loves them and he's bringing correction just as we would to small children to keep them in line. And why? Because we don't like them? No, it's because we love them, that we want to make sure that things are going well. May God give you wisdom and insight to know his word, that you can do the right thing, that there is no question that you have served well and you have the assurance of your faith in Christ. And may we all learn from the mistakes in the Corinthian church and how to avoid them because of these books. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, for the church in Corinth. They didn't have the benefit of your written word, and it was difficult for them. I understand we cannot condemn them in any way. But, Father, we ask that you would help us to avoid these errors, that you would keep us on the narrow path which leads to salvation and help us to avoid the wide path that leads to destruction, especially in these days which are evil. So, Father, we thank you again for your word, for your Holy Spirit who brings us instruction and comfort. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. And everyone said...